0: A reading from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of god which passes surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in christ jesus finally beloved whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is just whatever is pure whatever is pleasing whatever is commendable if there is any excellence And if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone jars of water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom. He said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ
2: let 's uh, pray together, our Father in heaven. we ask that you would be with us as we think about um, this question of joy, and that uh, as much as anything that you would allow us to become persons in and in really a community as a whole that experiences joy, that we live with it in some meaningful way across the spectrum of our lives. So would you meet us, we ask in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. All right, so we're finishing up this series that we've been doing, that we've called Questions That Linger, and we left this last question, uh, this question about joy. Is real joy possible? Is it even possible? Um, so some of you may be familiar with Marie Kondo she bears some mention perhaps helping us reduce our material footprint as you go through your closets and you pick up items of clothing or some discarded thing in your basement and you ask the question does this spark joy and you think no so I toss it and you think yes so I hold it I'm not talking about that kind of joy I'm all about reducing our uh, material footprint. That's probably a very good thing and a liberating thing in many ways for most of us, but I'm talking about, I want us to ask a question about the kind of joy that is described in Scripture that is assumed that we would experience it, <laughs> that it's not uh, remote, it's not, it's not distant, it's near, it's present to us across life's different kinds of circumstances, some of which are happy and many of which are not or decidedly unhappy, right? Um, How do we have joy like that? Uh, I think joy in our culture gets really confused with things like happiness, for example. We'll talk about that a little bit in a few moments. Uh, We confuse joy with happiness, and so uh, joy becomes something we might imagine ourselves escaping into. Or if you look at some Christians, we're pretty good at denying pain, right? We sort of stick our heads in the sand, and we sort of live in this pretend universe in which all is just so wonderful and happy. Um, that's not a very biblical notion of joy, I don't think. Uh, I want to, I'm curious about the kind of, jo- of joy that sticks to your life across all circumstances, the good ones and the bad ones. It's a non-trivialized buoyancy in life, even in the face of loss and suffering Is that kind of joy possible? Now, sometimes you may not even walk around your household or life thinking, is joy possible? But you implicitly bump into that question all the time. You bump into that question every time life gets hard. Every time joy feels out of reach. Every time something happens circumstantially, which just reminds you poignantly that life is not as it ought to be, certainly not the way you want it to be. So let's think about joy, particularly as Paul uh, instructs us in this text from Philippians. So first thing to note is this. Joy is a practice. (laughs) Joy is a practice. It's a practice as much and maybe even before it is ever a feeling. Joy is a practice. And here you see that as Paul opens this part of the text, and he just tells us to do something. Like He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say it, rejoice in the Lord always. Um, I don't think he's talking about learning that nice little children's song, I've got the joy, 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 joy. Not that. What does he want us to do? How does he want us to practice joy in the midst of our lives? Um, Stephen Fowle, in his commentary on Philippians Wonderful commentary if you ever want to sort of plow through something on Philippians. He says this of joy. He says it's not so much a spontaneous emotion that is some core feeling that we associate with happiness as it is a response formed in those people like us who are learning to read the economy of God's activity in the world and who are able to act in conformity with that unfolding story of Jesus. It's a beautiful way of thinking about joy. It tells us it's a practice. It's something that we can take up across the spectrum of life circumstances. It's a practice that's available even to those who suffer because they are awake, wide awake, increasingly awake to the drama of that which God is doing in Jesus. And it's an awakeness that leads us to show up in life differently. Now, joy is a practice. Second like thing, joy is sticky. Uh, I had an experience last month. I, was, I, I went uh, and did an intensive retreat with a Christian counselor or spiritual director. And I did the retreat because I felt, you know, I was just commenting to Stacy one day, I said, hey, I think I feel kind of stuck in life. I feel emotionally stuck. I feel relationally sort of immobilized sometimes. I feel vocationally stuck and just so on and so forth. And I don't feel joy. I just don't feel joy. And Stacy said, well, hey, we heard about that dude that does intensives. Why don't you sort of check in on that? And so I did. I shoot an email off to this person. I said, hey, I would like to do an intensive. We do a little follow-up. We get into this situation. I actually fly out. We do this intensive together. Wonderful time. But one of the painful things about something like that is you're going to look at your life story And you're always going to have to look at chapters and episodes and moments in your life story that aren't good. They're painful. They're hard. They're things that you'd rather stick your head in the sand and avoid. So here I am in the middle of telling this guy this one particular story and episode uh, that actually kind of escapes me at the moment, what we were talking about. But he looked at me and he said, well, how did you feel when that happened? So there we are in that feeling language moment. How did you feel, Tuck, when that happened? I said, I think I felt a little bit embarrassed. And he said, embarrassment or shame? I said, oh, hmm. He said, do you know the difference between embarrassment and shame? I said, well, why don't you tell me the difference between embarrassment and shame? And we'll see which one of those that I was feeling. And he describes it this way. He says, look, embarrassment is episodic. It's It's a moment. It's funny. It's when something's happened that leaves you feeling a little off kilter, but you get over it. You move on. You move into the next moment, and maybe even you can laugh at that moment yourself. It's episodic. Shame is sticky, and it goes with you across the spectrum of your life. It doesn't go away. It sort of lingers over our lives. I think we could say something very similar about the relationship between happiness and joy. Happiness is episodic. It exists in a moment. occurs, it happens, but it's vulnerable to the change, right? It's vulnerable to life-changing circumstances. But joy, at least as the New Testament and as Scripture talks about it, I think is sticky. It moves with us through life. It moves with us across life. The American dream that has shaped our imaginations for happiness, at least in part, Pick up any version or any variety that you want. It is always built around experiences of happiness, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness even. Happiness is a good thing. I want to be happy and you want to be happy. And part of that is because God's made you a human being. You have a body. You have desires. You have senses, as we were singing about earlier. You are aware of life in this world. And pleasure is a good thing. It feels good. It's exciting. It's pleasant. You are built, in some sense, for experiences of happiness. But here's the problem. Happiness is vulnerable to the real world that we live in. A world of change, a world of sorrow, a world in which human beings don't relate to one another in consistently loving ways, but we relate to each other in challenging and hard ways, and we actually reproduce in one another brokenness and further brokenness. Happiness is vulnerable to the real lives that we live. It's a good thing, but we've built a world that is alienated from God. We're alienated from one another, and we don't... Live in happy circumstances all the time. In fact, the vast majority of the world's population do not live in circumstances that produce anything like sustained happiness. Joy is sticky, and it's sticky because joy, at least as Christians talk about it, or at least the way we ought to talk about it is about relationship, right? Happiness isn't stable in our world, but joy in contrast is stable because the life that we have with God is stable. The life that we have with God through Jesus is stable. It's real, it's sustained, and it can go with you across the different circumstances of life. Joy is a gift of relationship with God who is faithfully present to us in love and who is always and ever more moving earthly life towards this place of consummation when we are with the Lord, a world of peace and goodness and truth and justice and beauty that will go on and on and on forever. We belong to that God. Christian joy is rooted in this life with God. So think about your closest friendships. Just like call one of those friendships to mind. You've certainly been in friendships that have sort of fallen away in your life. And why is that? Because something has changed in you or in the other person or in your circumstances, and the friendship just didn't move with you into those new circumstances. But you have relationships that you care deeply about that keep adapting to the reality of what's happening in your life. It just keeps going on. That's the kind of relationship that Jesus has with us. Christian joy is anchored in this life with God that matures and grows up. And it can grow across different circumstances. But this life with God changes you so that you live in circumstances differently your own circumstances and those of others. Sometimes we think of Christians as talking about the future as a way of escaping the present, right? Have you ever, you've thought about that, the pie in the sky notion of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, right? And that, and sometimes we can think that if we think so much about the future, right, that we're of no earthly good. In other words, you don't care about the poverty that you see or the racism that you encounter. You don't care about the illiteracy. And, and sometimes we can so retreat into this Christian bubble of happiness, right, or attempt happiness that we just become really neglectful of the world that we live in the relationships that we actually inhabit but here's the thing about christian joy the relationship that we have with the real god one of the ways that you'll know that you're holding on to joy like that one of the ways that you'll know that you're that that god is going with you and you are going with god is that you will be changed in your own circumstances You'll live with them differently. You'll have the courage to encounter other people, and you become a space in which other people meet God. They discern his presence in you. In other words, you cease to be a person who stands in the way of someone meeting God, and you become an avenue. You become a pathway, a doorway, and that means that you take up action in the world differently. You have different agency in your life. Joy. Notice how Paul develops the practice of rejoicing in the Philippian text, right? So even as he talks about circumstances in which joy probably felt counterintuitive, he calls us to these other things, right? Notice these words, right? Be gentle. Let your gentleness be known. Don't worry. Um, If I did a little simple poll, who's a worrier? Many of us in the room would sort of raise our hand. Yes, get those hands up, right? We, We tend to be people that just become anxious about the brokenness of the world and how we're encountering it and very often how our dear friends how people we love encounter the brokenness of the world and it's easy for us to become persons that just get fixated on something that we're worried about or anxious about have you ever done that but Paul urges us here to not be worriers interesting right When we were confessing sin earlier, right, these are the kinds of things that crop up in our minds. We think, I don't live in a consistent way with the relationship that I actually have with God. Paul is talking about circumstances that might prompt worry. Paul is talking about life in a world that prompts the opposite of gentleness. In other words, you get riled up. You become feisty, you become angry, you don't live in a gentle way. He's talking about circumstances in which we are like. He, he urges us to sort of end this life with God to encounter peace, but the circumstances of life aren't peaceful. All of these words are not sort of easy things to do. These are practices and experiences that only feel easy when our circumstances are happy. When things are going okay, when life's happening and unfolding according to plan. But in the space of encountering the fact that, guess what? Our world is really broken. Our world is filled with sinful people. We contribute to the sin of the world ourselves. When we encounter these realities, right? I'm not gentle, not naturally. I'm not peaceful, not naturally. I'm not at ease in my mind. I may more naturally worry. Paul's assumption is that the Philippian circumstances aren't easy. Those days are gone. They don't exist. I would not have wanted to be one of the early adopters of Christianity because the kind of suffering that Christians then and even now in parts of our own world encountered, it's not simply a hard diagnosis about your health. It's not simply the loss of someone that you love to death. It's not simply the realities of poverty. But you were persecuted and you were tortured. Would you want to take up faith in this Jesus in that context of life? That was Paul's context of life. So what does gentleness look like in that kind of a circumstance what does not worrying look like when you'd rather perseverate on some matter? What does peace look like when there's no apparent experience of peace? Paul here urges the church to focus their thinking, right? Think on truthful things, honorable things, just things, pure things, pleasing and commendably excellent things, right? This long list of things that Paul calls us to sort of put our minds on, to focus on, these are some of the most over and misused words in this letter, almost certainly. Because I think it's so easy to read that and say, well, You know, Paul is saying you should really think happy thoughts. Like, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about sort of if you just will engage the power of positive thinking. I've heard people say this, by the way. You've heard people say this. You've encountered people that try to live that way. Just keep on the sunny side of life. Is that what Paul is saying? I don't think so. In fact, I know not. Paul is urging followers of Jesus to live together... Together, not in solitude or in isolation, but together in such a way as to reinforce the economy of that which God is doing in Jesus. Remember the quote from Stephen Fowle? Joy is a practice as you and I sort of circle back to the truth of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus. And the promises that God gives us in association with our life with Jesus. And the movement and activity of God as he's moving all of life toward a place of consummate joy. Paul says, live toward one another in such a way that you come back to the story of Christ over and over and over again. So that the life that you live, the choices you make in everyday spaces of ordinary life conform to the world that God is bringing. They fit. The coming kingdom of God. That's really what Paul is talking about. And how do we do that? We do that in this moment when we gather together each week, sort of as this poignant moment of celebratory worship. When we remember the story of the gospel, we come back to it week after week after week. And we say, as we depart from this time of worship, that we want to go into the world under the blessing of the words that we've said, the prayers that we've spoken, the relationship that we possess in our relationship with God through Jesus We want to go into the world sort of holding on to those realities so that when I'm home this afternoon or when I'm in a private conversation with someone or when I'm encountering something that might provoke worry or when I'm encountering something that's challenging in the world, I remember who God is in this world. And I don't become forgetful of him. And I come back over and over again Paul is urging the followers to live in a way that reinforces this economy as they wait for the future of Jesus. And it's profoundly practical as we just show up in the context of worship, where you show up in one another's lives as spiritual friends, by which I mean not just someone who's a companion in life, but someone who is intentionally willing to bring that person you love back to the story of Christ over and over again. And yes, it includes moments of private and personal prayer, but it includes largely our life together as we reinforce the truthfulness of who God is and what he's done. The whole point is hearts and minds guarded in this relationship with Christ so that we live toward each other, remembering this story over and over again. What's the core part of any human relationship? communication you talk to people you love you engage with people you love you inquire about people that you love you enter the back and forth nature of communication between those that you love and with those that you love and here paul urges the same thing for the church talk to god pray make your requests known to him, engage God in conversation, in communication with him. I'm pretty sure that the prayers that were prayed did not erase the suffering that they were encountering in the moment. We know that Paul, for example, would become a martyr in the faith But these prayers anchored their life in communion with God in such a way that they could possess courage and boldness and certainty and joy in the midst of life circumstances. Paul, as he closes this part, he says, "Um, Look at my life, imitate me, imitate the pattern of living that you've seen and heard in me. In other words, Look at another human being, and this is if you find yourself in places of struggling to find joy, one of the things that you might do is just try to get near people that seem to be practicing it well. I'm not talking about people that feel naive to you, or, un, you know, or that feel like they live lives of denial, but rather identify with, find, get near the stories of other people in this church community or other parts of the world who exemplify real joy. Get near their stories because our stories belong to one another. We live for the sake of the other. The community of the saints that demonstrates something joyful. One last thing as we finish up. The gospel reading takes us into a moment that's really happy, right? (laughs) This beautiful story of the wedding of Cana, which is also a very strange story of the wedding at Cana. Most of us have not been at parties where the great wine comes out last perhaps or wine is automatically replenished in some way. But here we have this interesting miracle of Jesus uh, in this wedding feast at Cana, and it gestures beyond the wine that is tasted toward the reality of the winemaker, Jesus himself. So here we are at this wedding. You've read this story, and you've perhaps been perplexed by it, as I am. Mary seems to be a little bit in that Jewish mother role. Not Laurel, I'm sorry, but I'm not sure you got the the tone right this morning. I, I don't know. I had it more like, they have no more wine. Jesus, do something. I don't know. So it's a, it's a weird story, right? You hear Mary. You observe and listen to Jesus who gives us his own enigmatic, strange comments. What does this have to do with me? <laughs> you know? and you just kind of keep going it's like so weird what is going on in this particular moment with Jesus and then Mary seems to get that something's going to happen because she tells us just do what he says right and and then Jesus does it like he calls the servants to bring these water pots and fill them up to the brim And they're a particular kind of water pot, right? They're the water pots that are associated with the Jewish law. In other words, the religious practices of purification, of washing your hands and things like that. And Jesus takes that water that's put in those giant pots and he makes it wine. And then John wants us to know that it was absolutely the most amazing wine. In other words, the best has been saved for last. Um, And there's so many strange things about this moment. What is the point? And how does it help us connect with joy? I think this is a miracle of excess. (laughs) It is a miracle that gives us a little bit of of a clue as to how much God loves us and how much he wants to fill our sad world with beautiful, good things, And that's why Jesus has shown up. That's why he's present. He's delivering the world out of its sorrow toward a place of consummate blessing and wholeness and shalom, right? Peace, justice, goodness, love, truth, all of those things replete in that particular world. That's why Jesus has shown up. It's a kingdom of excess. And this feast really marks this tremendous shift in our awareness of the economy of God, of that which he is doing in the person of Jesus as he deploys these common Jewish legal water pots as the avenue by which he will bring good wine to this party. The economy of God's promised kingdom turns our expectations of God For ourselves and our personal story or the stories of people that we love, of our sense of neediness in the world, it turns our world upside down. It turns the way we think about God and his presence to us upside down. Why? Because he's not far off. He's near. He's close up. He's here, active in our world, moving the promise of his kingdom forward. And guess what? You're part of that you're brought into that story. Later on in John, Jesus will remind the disciples that in this world, as long as you and I live here, you're going to have troubles. I don't like that statement, but it's a real statement. It's an honest statement. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world. So think about your troubles for a moment. Troubles are anything that's disruptive of life. Anything that's disruptive of continual experiences of happiness, perhaps we could say. Anything that's disruptive and reminds you that this world is not as it ought to be. Those are troubles. For some of you, it's a hard diagnosis physically. Uh, some sickness that you carry in your body for some of us it it could be that we're just getting older for some it could be a broken relationship that doesn't work right for some we could just keep going on and on it could be an experience of racism it could be an awareness that our world is a place of systemic racism not just personal hate between groups of people but actually there are practices embedded in our world that are deeply broken in our economy how do you experience troubles? What reveals them to you? Jesus says in the world you're going to have troubles. We live in a world that is broken, that is out of sorts with God, in which we're out of sorts with one another, and no amount of education, no amount of development of empathy and exposure relationally has ever been able to change that. That's depressing. Right? I mean, seriously. But Jesus says, I've overcome the world, that world, that world of trouble, that world that doesn't work according to plan, that doesn't reflect God's goodness and His glory. I've overcome that world. And you live in the world of troubles now, experiencing these things, but you experience them because of your, through your attachment to Jesus very differently. The sticky relationship that no amount of unkindness will undo his kindness to you. No amount of experiencing the injustice of our world will mean that you end up ultimately in a spot of injustice. You belong body and soul to Jesus who loved you and gave himself up for you. Trouble is any way that we experience the brokenness of the world, abuses, Racism, inequality, sickness, losses of every sort, death itself. How do you live across those troubles with joy? By just coming back to this economy of God in Jesus that's so beautifully revealed. The one who overcomes that world. It promises that he is with you to the very end. And that he will carry your life in such a way that even in this life you will live differently and can live differently, without this life with Jesus, all you and I are left with are momentary experiences of vulnerable happiness at best. But in this life with Jesus, we are carried across the diversity of human experiences, the pain as well as the joy as people deeply connected to the God who loves you and says, this world of love is the one that will endure the test of time. In Jesus Christ, God has come near to our real lives, not our imagined ones. The real you, the one that you want to hide the one that you'd like to live in isolation from, yourself perhaps. Jesus has come near us into our world to carry us into a world of goodness that will endure forever. So the kind of joy that we speak of this morning and we're called to take up in our practice is the joy simply of waking up to the reality of life with God in Christ over and over again, remembering that he's the God who loves you and who carries you as his burden as the psalmist articulates it. He's with you to the very end. Knowledge of that will hold you in your moment differently as you live as a child of God in this world of trouble, as a space in which other people hear the story of who Jesus is and his love for them. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we walk through this world and we struggle and we fall flat on our faces over and over again but you're the God who loves us and who looks on our lives even in our deepest spaces of sorrow and you say I get you and I understand you and I love you. Help us to remember those words because they're the hardest words for us to hold on to. Would you lift us and raise us into the beauty of our life with Christ so that we would be individuals in a community of joy we ask in his name.